and welcome to That's Debatable, the weekly news podcast of the Free Speech Union. Today, we're delighted to be joined by Sybil Ruth, who's a member of the Free Speech Union and an editor of 30 Years Experience. We're here to talk to her about her case, and I bet you can guess which issue she has views about which have got her into trouble in the world of publishing and the literary world and the world of editing. Sybil, welcome to That's Debatable. We're delighted to have you on the show. It's lovely to be here. Well, if you can bear to talk about it, perhaps you could just describe what happened um, and how you came into the orbit of the Free Speech Union. You you have a a legal battle and you're going to the Employment Tribunal next month. Um, How did this begin? What did you say? How did you get into trouble? Well, the organisation that decided to dispense with my services um, is called Cornerstones Literary Consultancy. And at the start of 2021, I was looking to do some more work um, involving, I help writers, I help them get their manuscripts more publishable, I work with people who write memoirs, I work with people who write novels. And um, and Cornerstones was looking for new editors, and I responded to um, an advertisement they put on their website. And for about 15 months, everything went really smoothly. It's work I'm very used to doing. They gave me some interesting clients. I was working in slightly new ways. And I really thought it was going to be a happy ever after kind of story. I'm 63 now. And my intention had been to carry on working until retirement age and possibly beyond. Then in May 2022, slightly peculiar things began to happen. They had offered me some work and it was an interesting assignment. I accepted it. And then I just um, sent a very routine email saying, could the manuscript send me, could the author send me the manuscript in a different format, not as a PDF file, but a Word file, because that would be easier for me to to make alterations to. And I got a reply saying, um, Um, something's gone wrong. Could you just hold off on this one? Possibly. Um, It's not going to happen. And that's very strange because, you know, they'd offered me work and they appeared to be taking it away. And the only conclusion I could draw was that there's a process of matching authors and editors and where the author is given the choice of three and they pick the one who they think will be the best fit. And I thought it was just conceivable something had gone wrong at the office that... um, we'd been matched up wrong and I was expecting you know something more in the way of an apology because I'd started work it would be a fairly major mistake to make but I'd not done that much work on the manuscript and I thought well you know these things happen. The next thing that happened was an email came out from one of the members of staff there which was about the organisation's values which all sounded quite innocuous. It was talking about, in many ways, it sounded good, you know, we're committed to, you know, non-discriminatory practice, that, um, but it got, was also saying, we reserve the right to, you're all ambassadors, they said, you're, you're ambassadors for Cornerstones. And if anybody goes against our values, anybody says anything hateful, we reserve the right to get rid of this, this person. And I was a little bit alarmed at that point because I thought the definition of hate has become very, very wide in social media. It rather than meaning, you know, trading abuse or you know sustained 
bullying or sort of saying things like you deserve to die. I feel we're in a culture where sometimes simply disagreement on very important topics is is framed as hatred. I've always been a feminist. Um, I'm what would be called a second wave feminist. You know, I sort of grew up in the era where things, where, where books like The Female Eunuch were being published. And I found, you know, what was being said so formative. It made, you know, as a young woman, it made so much sense for me about the kind of experiences that I was having. That I was very lucky in that, you know, there were a lot of women-only spaces when I was growing up, so that if you wanted to, you know, learn self-defence, if you wanted to join a women's writing group, you know, that there was always a certain carping about, you know, bloody feminists, you know. But at the same time, it was also accepted, completely accepted, that women would seek to organise in this way. And while men might snipe a bit on the sidelines, they would never actually try and enter those spaces. There was a respect for that. And now, now that's changed, and that the discussion of the need for women only spaces using women in the sense of adult human females that's under threat and that's something which i've been talking a lot about on social media and it occurred to me that this could be construed wrongly in my view by the people i was working for as hateful so I emailed them saying, look, I'm really glad you're talking about equal opportunities because this is something that means a lot to me. I work in libraries as well as working as an editor, and that's something we might talk about later. But um, it is important to me to discuss uh, women's rights, the situation of women on social media. And I'm really, really pleased that the Maya Forstater case has, you know, there was a decision there that um, gender critical beliefs, beliefs that biology is important, that those beliefs are worthy of respect in a democratic society. So that that was really how I sort of framed the email, in a, in a, you know, what I thought was a very, very positive way, but also making my position clear and saying, if you've got any problem with this, you know, if you want to kind of explore this one further, please talk to me, you know, let's carry on the conversation. I got a very short I, reply I, I saying remember. that my views had been noted and I felt... It was sort of, it was too short. There was something that didn't feel quite right about it. And I also felt a little concerned about this assignment, which had been taken away from me, which which didn't go forward. So I thought, well, perhaps the one thing I can do in this situation, you know, I, I couldn't understand why they were going a bit chilly with me because I was actually getting very, very good feedback from clients. But I thought, I'll just have a look at my profile on the company website. And... If I feel it needs tweaking or adjusting so that I will, it will be any writers who are interested in working with an editor will, you know, be, be clear that I'm an experienced editor with a range of skills. And when I looked on the website, this was in June 2022, my profile had disappeared. And I instantly felt something had gone really, really wrong. And I, I felt sick. And I also thought, uh, I have to do something. Well, obviously, I did the, the, the immediate thing of I sent a short and polite email saying, you know, what's happened to, to, to my profile? I've noticed it's not there. You know, could you explain? Because I suppose just conceivably they'd kind of rebooted the site and, you know, there'd been some sort of glitch and part of the site wasn't there, but there, everybody else was there. 
And they said, well, we don't think we're going to... And there was some evidence building up here, so yes. wasn't there? This sort of a number of things that started to happen. Yes, yes. I felt there was a certain kind of narrative, but with gaps, and I wanted to kind of, you know, get information to fill those gaps. But I was told just, well, we refresh our stable of editors regularly and we don't think we're going to be using you anymore. And it just did not make sense. It didn't feel like an honest answer. And again, there was this question of how 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 do I go go forward? Because I value honesty and that, you know, as I hope would have been clear in my email to them about the issue of what or what what or what is not hatred, um, that I'm I I really welcome different viewpoints and would always try to look for I mean, I believe in standing up for my principles, but I think there are also times when it's possible via conversation, via debate, to to reach understanding and perhaps hammer out certain forms of compromise. And I thought, where do I go from here? And this was a point at which I spoke about the dilemma to some female friends, and one of them said, contact the Free Speech Union, and that's where you come into the story. Yeah, I... I I mean, I've I've read all of the correspondence you've just described, Sybil, because we were we were emailing about this a year ago when all of this was happening, um, and I can't overstate how reasonable and how reasonably framed everything you said was. It was all couched in the language of equality and human rights and respect and tolerance and so on. Um, so you'd at this point you'd begun to connect these dots. You you'd linked your views about these issues to the fact that you had been dropped by the agency. You'd had this very um, impenetrable reply that gave nothing really away. Um, so tell us then, what, what did you do next? How did you get the, the proof that linked your, that, 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 that your views were linked to the fact you'd been cancelled and dropped by the agency? I think one of the really helpful things you did was immediately I felt that I wasn't alone. I really had not expected this to happen. I was aware, I mean, cancellation is a topic that's been very much in the media. And I was used to, you know, stories about people like the author JK Rowling. Um, I was used to hearing about, you know, academics such as Kathleen Stock. And often there were people who were quite in the public eye, whereas I regard myself as, you know, a small press writer. I kind of beaver away you know, on, on the sidelines. Uh, and it has simply not occurred to me that somebody would try and take away some fairly modestly paid work from me. So I was at a loss. And by Free Speech Union sort of saying, well, you know, this is part of a larger pattern. It's not just the big cases that hit the headlines. This is sadly quite an ordinary thing to happen. And the first thing you do is you're entitled to do what's called a subject access request and get the information. If you feel that the people you've been working for haven't been honest with you, they are obliged to um, disclose emails, internal documents and so on, so that you have a more real sense of what's actually been going on. So that's, that's the process we went through. And then I discovered that there had been correspondence among the people in the Cornerstones team saying, you know, is Sybil working on a project? Take her off one immediately. One, one of the things that surprised me was suddenness. I could almost describe it as a kind of brutality of 
what was done. And that was done actually before the email about equality and values. There was no attempt to, to use the jargon, reach out to me that something, it, it was apparent that some, I think it only actually became apparent at a slightly later stage when we moved towards the tribunal that they, the decision to remove me from the project and ultimately remove me from the website was in, in relation to my use of social media, where, you know, like many people, I will use... Had someone, had someone found it, um, Sybil? Had someone yes. found your social media post? Something which appears to be a little unclear, but in the documents that they needed to submit as part of the employment tribunal process, they singled out a particular social media post, which I think had been drawn to their attention, that it might be rather dramatic to say that there's a war going on in in the field of publishing. But Mm -hmm. I think that there are different sets of values that are kind of in a rather uneasy relationship. So I would say that by and large, members of my generation are committed to, it's, it's odd, we both use the same, same words, but we use mean very different things by them. We both talk about diversity, we both talk about inclusion, and I would say that publishing and writing has to be about putting forward a range of ideas, a range of viewpoints, and almost like leaving the readers, leave, leaving people to make up their own minds and have conversations among themselves about what they think is right and what they think is wrong. And I think there's been a terrible, if I can describe it as a perversion of, of what diversity and inclusion means. And that really, very, very sadly, it there can be a tend, a wish, and it's framed as progressive, to try and cast out opinions which are believed by some to be wrong. So that there's an urge going on to sort of purify publishing of the wrong kinds of opinions, which I think can only actually have a bad effect on the quality of the writing we have. So I think somebody who who was of this much, much more puritanical um, strain of thought had picked on a particular very, very short Twitter exchange where somebody had posted a picture of a man, a biological male, but somebody who probably does not identify as male or wishes to transition. So this was a male person, very, very heavy five o'clock shadow, and, uh, but, but also dressed in a way that can be more associated with stereotypes of femininity, wearing a pink jacket, wearing lipstick, um, you know, hair waved, etc. And the person who posted the tweet said, you know, something along the lines of not what you want to find in the ladies' loo, to which I'd replied with a single word, nightmare, because uh, as part of my sense that if you want a female-only space, frankly, loos are about, you know, they come pretty high up there in in, in terms of a space that needs to be female-only for all sorts of reasons to do with privacy and dignity and safety. And it is also nightmarish because women now, you know, whereas a few years ago, if you sort of said, look, there's a bloke in the female women's toilets, 
you know, security would would immediately realise that this was a concern from a, you know, a safeguarding point of view. You know, the idea would be a man would have no business there. Any business that they thought they had there was likely to be, you know, the, the, the possibility of malign intentions is quite high. So anyway, I, I tweeted that. I added a sort of supplementary tweet where I sort of said that because quite often Twitter is a sort of emerging conversation, you have second thoughts, it's a very short form. So I also said, well, I really absolutely supported the right of men to present themselves in however they wish to. If a man feels more comfortable wearing, you know, he get has in finds enjoyment and pleasure in wearing makeup, in wearing soft pastel colours, in, you know, um, having a handbag with a gilt chain. That is absolutely fine. You know, go for it. Live your best life. Uh, but, the, the, you know, the stopping point is don't enter a female-only space. So I made it clear within the tweet that I was not wishing to discriminate against men who, who want to kind of break with masculine stereotypes. I simply don't want them in female-only spaces. That is my view. But unfortunately, it appears that this tweet was, or this um, this sort of series of tweets, in the view of Cornerstones, made me completely unfit to do editorial work for them. And I would like to say that, you know, I, I'm absolutely clear that I am it's almost as if one is two people, as the person who you are in your non-work life, where you engage with all sorts of social issues, you have opinions, you take part in those debates, and as also the person you are in your professional life. And when I'm working as an editor, I am solely focused on the client and helping them to write as in the, the best book they can and assisting them to get published. It doesn't really matter what those clients' views are. I'm a Labour voter. One of the first manuscripts I had for Cornerstones was somebody who was actually quite a prominent conservative in public life, the sort of person who's got a Wikipedia entry. I, on a sort of personal level, when I first was offered the assignment, I thought, oh, this, this, this might be an interesting one. But it was an absolutely fascinating journey to work with them. And I, I see editorial work very much one of the sort of selfish pleasures I get from a work from work, which is not hugely well paid, is I'm constantly finding it challenges me, it broadens me, it makes me question the way I think. And my assumption had been that people engaged with me in this kind of work would have a similar set of viewpoints, you know, that, that diversity and inclusion is about finding ways to work together productively and creatively. And it just makes me so sad, you know, quite apart from my anger about what's happened, you know, the, the, the kind of loss to, to, to culture. You seem to be talking about diversity of thought. Absolutely. And it would be, I mean, I have the sort of normal human weakness. I, I like to think I'm right about things, but I do think it would be a rather boring world if everybody thought the same as me. And actually one of my favourite quotations, I think is a Thomas Cromwell one, where it's, it's sort of, think it possible in the bowels of Christ that you may be mistaken. If somebody says to me, I think you might be making a mistake. I mean that that's 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 an interesting challenge, and 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 a kind of a good conversation will will result from it. So you, you know, you're all doing too much listening. You know, why why don't you kind of challenge me if you like? Um, I'm afraid Tom and I probably agree with. I think Tom and I agree with everything you've said so far, Tom. Don't we? Um, 
Well, I'm just wondering whether Thomas Cromwell took his own advice. That's where I'm, I'm going to go and look up that quote. And... Yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> he was all right until he got on the wrong side of Henry yes. VIII, wasn't he? Yes, but I, don't, I mean, I don't think it would be dull, you know, being in a room with Thomas Cromwell. It might, it, a lot of stained glass might get smashed and that would be, be tricky. <laughs> Make sure you're not yeah. in a monastery. And anyway, but that's what took us to the point where now we're at a, that. That's the sort of short version. But that's why I've got a tribunal hearing coming up at September the 14th, because one of the things that is a key aspect of the case is because what I'm doing with Cornerstone is not a kind of nine to five job. It's um, you know, it's, there's been this big expansion in, in kind of freelance work, precarious employment. It's very, very common in the arts. But it does unfortunately mean that it can be used as organisations can demand a great deal of of people who work for them. And I think because people who work in the arts tend to be passionate about it, they'll give a great deal. But then what can sometimes happen when there's a sort of problem is they'll turn around and say, well, it's nothing to do with us. You're an independent contractor. You know, you can't possibly claim for discrimination. And so that the question of employment status needs to be clarified before some of the larger issues to do with whether the, their behaviour towards me was discriminatory, whether they um, discriminated against me because I'm a gender-critical feminist and whether some of that discrimination might be related to to my age so that that would be settled further along the line and we we should say at this point that there is a crowdfunder that you can donate to still for uh there are 13 days to go as of monday the 21st which is when we're speaking now um and as you've just said the, the first part of the case is going to be about establishing whether you have equality act protection and dealing with the precarious nature of your contract and of course that's an issue that pervades the arts world and the world of publishing um, that, that you have lots of people in very precarious situations on very precarious contracts with ad hoc work and so on. Um, and, and lots of your your career progression and, and any kind of career stability depends basically on the subjective feelings of your employer or person you're contracting with. Um, and if they don't like what you're saying, it, it's, it's extremely difficult, which is obviously the situation you're, you're now in. I think one of the reasons why we've taken it to this point. I mean, obviously, from the point of view of the free speech union, it's part of a much larger pattern in which people who, who people's livelihoods are threatened because they will say quite ordinary or lawful things that employers simply don't happen to like. But I also feel in terms of future employment, I mean, I've spent a long time working in the arts and that if it there's a question mark hanging over me where somebody says, actually, we think you were hateful, we think you were abusive, we think you were a bully, uh, that doesn't make me sound like a wonderful person, you know, in, in the view of future employers' eyes. So I, I felt I've, it, on a personal level, it feels an attack on my identity because I've spent so long writing and it's something and helping other people write and it's something I care so much about but yeah it's it's it also it just makes me sound effectively I was treated a bit as if I'd committed gross misconduct as if I'd sort of had my fingers in the till or something like that and so you know I feel it, it, I need an apology I need it to be said no you know 
Sybil was professional and caring in her attitude to, towards her clients. She's, we would recommend her, you know, we, I think I, you know, I, although disagreement is, you, you can understand that some people may have all sorts of different ideologies. People might think, oh, you know, that, that, that people who wish to change sex are the most vulnerable group. They deserve special protection and so on. All, all those views can and should be debated. But I should not be cast as somebody who is a bad employee, a bad worker, simply because I've got a, a rather different set of views that I would not wish to discriminate anybody against anybody who's got a protected characteristic. But I also don't believe that there's a hierarchy of groups. I think we ought to be talking more about discrimination against those who are disabled, discrimination against those who've got um, different religious views. One might argue that gender identity ideology itself is a religion, but that we need to look at, um, you know, that, that sometimes peoples who have a very sincere traditional Christians have found that their employment is has been threatened because of they've talked about their faith in particular contexts and that that's worrying and sybil listening to you i don't think any listener um would would think for a moment that you aren't anyone but a very inclusive very thoughtful uh with with your your values are very important to you clearly um and to have i mean what's effectively happened is you've 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 ended up in a situation where, in a sense, that projection of yourself, you might start to question it and, and say, hang on, I thought I was a really inclusive person. I thought I was a really caring person. I thought I, I held values that, that meant I could have these sorts of discussions in an open, open way. And, and, and then suddenly you get this, this attack, uh, which you were clearly, you were aware it might happen from what you've said, but you were very surprised that it happened as suddenly yes. and as and as vehemently as it did. I mean, what what kind of effect did this have then on you, knowing that you are this reasonable, measured, thoughtful, academic person, and then you you have this attack that must have had a, had a, taken its toll. It was a huge shock. I mean, we're a year or so down the line, and so, you know. This might be a chance to sort of say a massive, massive thank you to people who've contributed to the crowdfunder because it's so moving, you know, that it's not just obviously some people who know me personally have, have contributed, but to have complete strangers saying, you know, good luck, we hope you win the case. It's it, I do feel very uplifted by it, but that was not, that's it's taken time to come to that point. I think at the start, well, the only things I can compare it to, there was one time when a car of mine got stolen and I just stood there at the space where the car had been parked outside my flat. And I thought, I just I just don't believe this. You know, it was just, there, there, is, there is a sense of, 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 of loss. And so it was... It was horrible, and I sometimes what would happen is I would wake up in the morning, and you know just sort of look round at my room, and then I'd suddenly think, Cornerstone's got rid of me, and and I would feel, then I would feel completely different. I would just feel kind of cold and 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 a bit shaky, and because you do, 
ask yourself whether whether it's your fault and I think for women there is a particular pressure to not stick your neck out particularly for women kindness is hugely valued you mustn't upset people you mustn't hurt their feelings and I think for women that there is this huge war between being kind and, and you know, kindness has its uses. Um, you know, I, I think it's simply the rather gendered nature of kindness. I think men ought to, be, male kindness must be valued. It shouldn't always be women being kind to accommodate men. You know, it's, it's, it's got to be, there's got to be a mutuality about it. But I think one of the trouble with this sort of prioritisation of kindness is that there doesn't sometimes seem to be a lot of space for truth and that so I think one of the things that a choice a difficult choice for a lot of women is can you risk telling the truth particularly when there's there's a kind of social conspiracy to lie it's rather like the emperor's new clothes and so one of the things I thought you know when I'm there was, there was a strange mixture of feelings because I felt vulnerable and I felt intensely distressed. I also knew that I was quite lucky because I could afford to fight this one. I could, not that I could afford to fight this in the sense of having a sort of huge private income or whatever, but simply by virtue of the fact I've got a supportive partner, um, our mortgage has been paid off, and my children have grown up. Now, if I was somebody living in London absolutely struggling to pay the rent, um, having to, you know, the children needed school uniform, that the modest income I was getting from editorial work was absolutely essential. That I, I mean, I've, I've been contacted, one of the earliest postings I did about this situation, another editor responded to it and basically said it was on a forum where we were using we were anonymous saying I got that I got that email about equality and values it made my blood run cold too I'm keeping my head down and I don't condemn that I can completely understand that because to lose any kind of work in a situation at a time of rising prices it it's a risk um so there's that. Um, I, I think it, there are there are many blessings. I'm, but in in you know you can be in the worst possible situation, and that there are sort of good good things can come out of the bad things. I do reflect rather ironically. I'm going to be 64 in a few weeks, and what's going on in my life is not like the Beatles song. You know, I'm not sort of sitting by the fireside knitting a sweater with my grandchildren on my knee. I've got a tribunal. And one of the less easy things, one of the things that does not feel like a blessing is that despite this abundance of support I've been talking about, there is a, the views of different generations can differ and that there's a very close family member who cannot support me and who has felt obliged to keep me at a distance because they disapprove so strongly of what I'm doing. They agree with cornerstones. They think my behaviour is hateful. And they are so upset about the case that even if one agrees not to talk about ideological differences, if I simply said, 
I'm waiting for a call from Free Speech Union or it's a few months, you know, they've set a hearing date now. That would cause this person huge distress. And it's one of the people I care about most in the world. And the fact that it's had to create such a distance in our relationship where we're just sending each other brief, polite WhatsApp messages rather than, you know, seeing each other and giving each other hugs and talking and laughing. It's horrible. And I'm part of me doesn't want to talk about it because it feels very raw and it feels very private. But I'm doing it because I think one of the more troubling things about this kind of false diversity and false inclusion and this false progressiveness is that it is it is so divisive and that people genuinely think that they're doing the right thing by casting people out and by saying no debate and I think it well it causes pain to me and it, maybe it causes pain to them as well because I do think you know on an underlying level that people tend to will often if people find it necessary, if people are told it's the right thing, you can't speak to your friend. Your friend is bigoted. We're not going to associate you if you associate with that person. That is causing such pain by by making people feel... It puts people under a lot of stress I, because I think that in a healthy society, we would be able to be friends with lots of different people. We would be able to love and accept, you know, our relatives, even if our relatives voted for a different different political party or didn't share our religious beliefs. And the kind of politics of purity, I think it, it leads to a lot of isolation and a lot of unhappiness. And, and I really wish things would change. I really wish that we could, you know, go go for a society which is genuinely liberal and genuinely tolerant. And while it's hard to sometimes to accept differences of belief, I think it's something we've got to try and do. I think we sometimes talk about the the macro. We talk about the broad sweep of the trend, but the micro, the micro effect of of that broad sweep is something we don't always appreciate. We don't always allow for that, as you say, that personal pain that doesn't just affect one person, but affects yeah. a circle of people um, in that. So I, I, I just really very grateful that you, you, you have added that element to this discussion. And I know that comes at, yes. at a cost as well. So thank you for going into that. Sorry, Ben, I interrupted you. No, that's okay. I was just going to say, it's the problem of politics as religion that I think we encounter time and time again. Um, and in your work, you were dealing with authors right at the beginning of the process or near the beginning of the process of dealing with manuscripts before they seek representation and being published and so on. And we've often spoken in previous episodes of the podcast about how many filters there are to get to the point where you are a published, successful author. But now we see that even once you've got an agent and you've got a book deal and you've been published, even once you've done all of those things, you can have a situation where staff in Waterstones are hiding your book in the back room or where in libraries, as we've seen last last month, um, library staff are either not stocking books or making them obscure or very difficult to get hold of. And overwhelmingly, this is something that's targeting gender critical female authors who have been critical of trans activism. And I know that's something you're very interested in and very concerned by. 
Yes. I mean, I work in libraries when I'm not doing editorial work. And it's one of the ways in which I sort of sought to kind of, you know, keep my contribution to the household income, you know, as as the editorial work sort of dropped and, you know, as as when Cornerstones stopped um, sending me work, I've done more library work. And I mean, libraries are interesting places because they are places which absolutely anybody can 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 go to they're one of the most inclusive spaces we have and that also means that there's a kind of tension of completing beliefs and i think most of the time libraries do their best to get it right the local authority where i do library work is as far as i'm aware and I mean, I've worked within 15 different libraries within this authority. I don't think what happened in Calderdale has happened. I don't, not aware of any books that have been hidden from, taken away from the shelves. What I can say is that I think that a lot of local authorities have farmed out their equalities work to stone walls so that equalities policies may not correctly be reflecting the law so that while libraries on the one hand are trying to be spaces where within the constraints of budget anybody can access any kind of book that you know that is unless you know the contents of that book are sort of prohibited by law you know bomb making guides no but harry potter yes but there, there are sort of the, the, the local authorities sort of promotion of stone wall politics, which means that it may be there's encouragement to promote and celebrate particular kind of books to do certain kinds of displays. So, um, and so, for example, uh, Pride Month is always celebrated. Black History Month is always celebrated. But it may be that the collections of books about disability or collections of books about religious faith somehow those were not there would be no official encouragement to highlight certain aspects of the collection and that the work the union for library workers which again will do a lot of good work around issues to do with health and safety and pay and so on has decided that gender critical views are part of a right-wing narrative and it's the responsibility of unison to produce information to counter this this right-wing narrative so that if you're as i am a gender critical feminist working in a for a council i mean i, I can only speak as freely as i can but i'm not currently employed by the city council i'm working for an agency so i go in and i do supply work and that means i've got a bit more freedom of expression so and we think we've also got a climate where users are much more inclined to say that they don't like a library shouldn't be have a particular kind of book on its shelves because the book is they they see the contents of the book as potentially harmful and that did happen in a library where i work it didn't happen to me but a couple of people came in a couple of youngish people and they said that helen joyce's book trans was not trans positive in their words and that they um, were essentially saying we think it's a problem that you're 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 having this book the the library in fact has a great many books 
that are LGBT in focus and which celebrate queerness, etc. But that the fact that a single book from a different perspective was on the shelves was struck these particular library users as problematic. And I think that people who work in libraries are caught in a bit of a bind because on the one hand, you could say libraries are about freedom of information. We can, we, you know, it's it's a book, you know, grow up, get on with it or something like that. One, one could say a slightly modified version of that. But the customer service ethic now is always a bit about to, to adopt in a rather placatory mode, you know, my God, this is an unhappy customer. This is a customer who's complaining. We must stop this before it gets any further, you know, and, and we must say, oh dear, I'm so sorry. So you're, you're sort of caught in two different directions. And one thing I wanted to say is that people talk a lot about librarians and I, I think libraries do absolutely fantastic work, but most of us people who work in libraries are not trained librarians. We're library assistants and we, we we get all sorts of training, but bizarrely, none of it is about librarianship. I had mandatory training in terms of what to do with a terrorist attack. So if anybody, you know, I, I shouldn't laugh about it, but but our libraries are yeah. libraries high up on the list. <laughs> well, it's not conceivable conceivable that a large library in a city centre, you know, could be. You know, it's not. I mean, I suppose with all kind of risk assessment, it's about, you know, on the one hand, is it likely to happen, but also would the consequences of it be very severe? But I mean, I've been trained on all sorts of things, you know, how to do proper lifting, um, what different kinds of fire extinguishers. But I've never actually once, despite having worked in libraries for over 10 years, been trained about what a library is for. You know, not being trained about issues to do with freedom of information. I mean, all this stuff I've looked up on the on the library, you know, the the library professionals website. But nobody has ever, when I started the jobs, nobody ever sat down with me and said, "This is what these are the principles. These are the values of the library service which you must defend." And I think again, there is tension between that more traditional, more libertarian view of libraries as places where there's this great freedom of ideas, but there's a more also kind of activist form of librarianship, which is rather in conflict with that. So I'd like to just read you some information from a specific group that is on the library. They're called CILIP. C-I-L-I-P is a professional librarians, librarians association in this country. But they're also hosting um, posts from smaller activist groups. So this is something you can find on the CILIP website. Um, transphobic books. In the last year, especially, there have been a few, few titles published which claim to be gender critical and argue for removal of trans rights. These authors and their work can be labelled transphobic and the writers themselves, TERFs, trans-exclusionary radical feminists. We, along with many in the LGP, LGBTIQ plus community, find these books offensive. However, these titles are legally published and members of your community may want to read them. We do not say you shouldn't stop these books or consider members' methods of censorship around them. Rather, we would recommend to be mindful of and not promote these books and to think carefully about how many you want to buy, perhaps based solely on individual requests. Furthermore, some of these titles claim to present facts while lacking peer-reviewed research and thus may fall 
fall below your local standards of reliability for nonfiction. Be especially careful to make sure you do not make mistakes, such as putting them on LGBTIQ plus displays or sections where they might cause upset. You can interfile them in your general stock, and those who want to seek out these titles can always do so via your catalogue without the risk of an LGBTIQ plus person coming across the book in a way that looks like it may be being endorsed. So I suspect that sort of philosophy was one that was in place at Calderdale. So, which which um, group is that, Sybil? That, that, it's that... a group called um, Book 28 Library. They're um, a specialised LGBT library with a base in um, Borough in London. And so I think as a specialised library, I mean, I think, you know, that, that I believe in feminist libraries, you know, there, there's definitely an argument for special interest collections as well as in the more kind of general community library which I work in but I think that kind of philosophy it becomes problematic in a library for the wider community which is looking to serve all sorts of groups it, it appears to be very much privileging the interests and feelings of one group but would that leaflet have been sent to all libraries, Sybil? Are you saying, so that's that's a leaflet in a LGBT library, but would other libraries have had that? Um, it's on the general, um, I mentioned SILIP, um, it, it's on okay. their website as a resource. Yeah. So yeah. that um, I think that it's tricky because... You're, you're looking at, I suppose, how people access and how different groups feel welcomed in a library. But I think one has to juggle the needs and the wishes of... You see, I mean, I'm not sure... But it's a very partisan leaflet, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's yeah. really I mean, coming from a position... what lesbian and gay library users generally want, that they may actually be wanting to get... A book on vegetarian cookery or the latest Lee Child thrillers. I think it's it's it, it probably doesn't even fully represent the community who it seeks to represent. So mm. it, it's very much perhaps a problem to do with a particular strand of activism and how I, th I think there are so many problems in libraries at the moment, and really the biggest one is a lack of funding. You know. And just just for libraries to be open as places that give information to you know and, and computers and just places where people can go just to stay warm. So libraries are having to do this huge juggling act, and I'm not sure that, for example, while a display may not be a display that, I mean, you know, I really don't particularly like. There's, a, there's a, a lot of books about fairies in the library. You know, sort of, um, they're, they're marketed at little girls, and I really don't like these books very much. But for a lot of, you know, some girls, small children, love them, and you know, they're an aid to reading. I think to sort of ask to say that somebody should go and be able to go into community library and like and approve of and feel comfortable with every single piece of the stock is a fundamental misunderstanding of what libraries are about. I mean, again, it's rather like what I was talking to do about in terms of writing and publishing and editorial work that, it, you know, that we should, we, the celebration of diversity should not be about, end up being about suppression or, you know, 
and one view. I mean, I, I'm very un, I'm very uncomfortable. And I walked past a display yesterday in uh, King's Cross. I'm very, very uncomfortable with the word queer and the way it's used because I grew up yeah. in a at a time when that was an insult. It was thrown sure. around as an insult, and you'd go home and you'd feel you'd feel two feet tall having received that insult. And now to see it being kind of turned around and advertised and publicised as a as something to be embraced, I will never do that. Uh, but I'm perfectly fine having that display there. Let it be there, let it stay there. That's absolutely fine. I'll, I'm happy to live with my discomfort. I'm very comfortable with being uncomfortable. Um, but the point is that that is now the single narrative, which I think is, is, is sort of what you're touching on there, Sybil. There's kind of now one view on what language to use, how to use it, yeah. and where to use it. And I mean, I personally w would like there to be more books that are by gender crit critical feminist authors. I mean, I think sometimes what's going on is rather the situation that's reflected in that that passage where in the libraries of the local authority where I work, there isn't a copy of Hannah Barnes's book, Time to Think. And I know that's been requested. That's about the Tavistock Institute. There isn't mm. Abigail Schreier's Irreversible Damage. There are three copies for a very, very big city of Helen Joyce's book, Trans, where there's a sort of waiting list. Um, so it's, it's. I think there are really important issues about, this, this may not sit, I think what the public will often like is a sort of story which just says, this is going on, this is wrong. But most organisations are, are, are quite complicated. And I think issues about how the stock is selected and are the titles available from the one contracted supplier. Are, are, so I, I think that there's a, very, there's a larger pub problem with publishing, and that's the kinds of the range of books that are being published, that often gender critical feminist books are published by very, very small publishers. And so it may be hard for libraries to order them, it, you know, then quite apart from the issue of can those books be promoted. Um, whereas this, what you might call the problematic term queer publishing has commercially that's regarded very much as you know yeah. the way to go though in fact Helen Joyce's yeah. book has sold you know it's it's a bestseller but it's a bestseller that's not been kind of promoted via literary festivals or where Waterstones has not perhaps been quite as enthusiastic as it might have been about spreading the word so um so sort of sometimes the, it, there's an odd situation where commercial publishing if it's been too captured by ideology, if it's not diverse enough, is not really giving the public the kind of reading material. It's not facilitating, you know, who knows how many good books never, never actually, you know, got published simply because some editor decided, you know, a bit of a problematic view here. Um, ben said that last week, didn't you, Ben? You found a quote, an amazingly powerful quote. Not, not to accuse you of plagiarism, Sybil. Um, but no, I, I think it, it, that's one of the great casualties of, of cancel culture is all of the work that we'll never get to see or read. Um, and as you said, there'll be countless novels or non-fiction books that never see the light of day because of this monocultural approach to equality, diversity and inclusion. I mean, maybe we're just having, maybe it's a kind of wave, a kind of puritanical wave, which will will recede. And I suppose one of the positive things is that things like digital publishing and ebooks, it has become easier for people. You don't always have to go the commercial route. 
but perhaps where where it become, relates to libraries that that libraries are working within a particular context and books by small indie publishers or self-published books are not necessarily going to make it on the library shelves and that a lot of people who really love reading don't actually have the spare income to buy a copy of every interesting new book that comes out. And not everybody has got, also it came up in relation to Calderdale, not everybody's got a lot of keen readers may not have brilliant digital literacy so that quite sort of saying well it's in the catalogue somewhere you'll get it if you only search that I think it's it's a matter of what gets promoted what gets celebrated what gets talked about and you know if the BBC isn't doing many book pub book programs if the Guardian is particularly selective about the viewpoints that it promotes it's it's as if you're having to try and sort of squeeze through this very very narrow gate to get it's it's not sometimes as as overt as people getting cancelled but people are getting kind of discouraged and marginalized or maybe held to much higher standards because that the the library yeah the library is sort of saying well you might have work you know that perhaps it hasn't been peer-reviewed this dangerous feminist book i mean none of the books about health and religion have been peer-reviewed you know this is not an academic library it's 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 about what people want you know we're not talking about universities here. We're talking about community libraries where just ordinary people are going to kind of to learn things and to, to be entertained and to sort of say, oh, well, you know, maybe maybe sort of there haven't been 20 committees deciding on this book, you, you, that the, the, every word of this book are right. Is, is That's creating an incredibly high bar, you know, which and it, it doesn't make sense. It's about the appearance of reasonableness, but it's about trying to sort of shut, shut you know, push the door as, as, as near shut as you can. Well, on that note, we're, we're coming towards the end of our time. Um, if I could just give one final plug for the crowdfunder on crowd justice that you can find um, to donate to Sybil's case to help Sybil, but also to deal with all of the wider issues that we've just spoken about. And case by case, I think we are turning the tide. Um, but please donate if you possibly can. It will make a, a huge difference. Help help turn the tide, please. Please, for everyone's sake, for, for all the readers and writers out there. Before we go, is there anything you'd like to add, Sybil, beyond that? don't think so. Um, you know, maybe a bit further along the line. I can, when we've, I've, you know, there's one hearing, there's possibly a second hearing. We could always get together again to talk about how it's all gone. And maybe we could argue with each other. We've agreed with each other far too much this time. <laughs> we'll have a big round next time. We'd love to have you back, um, hopefully with some good, good news. Ben and I have that problem. We have yeah. that problem. We do agree too much, no. don't we, Ben? Or, or are you meant to say no at that point? <laughs> but it's been a pleasure speaking to you. Yeah, we can pair some subjects to disagree about so we can have a kind of we can have a kind of verbal fight. We can show what debate is really like on air. But no, exactly. it's been really great. Thanks so much for, you know, inviting me on it. It's been great to talk to you both. Thanks for listening and uh, we'd love to speak to you again soon. All right. Uh, goodbye. Bye.